It's December 22nd, it's 2022. We're here in Studio One with one of my favorite people. Now, kids, he's won 10 Grammys. He's worked with Young the Giant, White Stripes, Jason Raz, My Morning Jacket, U2, Elton John, Etta James, four records with Etta James. About that, yeah. And he's just fucking cool. You're, you're, you're New York cool, though. Yeah, yeah. New York cool and L.A. cool are Very different. Aren't very they? Different. Very different. How, how is that? Why is New York cool? Because I think New Yorkers are kind of no bullshit people, you know? They just kind of tell you where it's at, and yeah. you just deal with it. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the cliche of L.A. people was always that they, you know, kind of smile and kind and love you, babe, let's do lunch kind of thing. But I don't think that's really true anymore. I think maybe because there's so many New Yorkers that have moved here over the last 20, 30 years that it's it's more New York than it is L.A. Yeah. now. Well, you're but, an OG East Coast guy, too, because you're from Boston. Mm-hmm. But you've been out here pretty much all of your career. Yeah, pretty much 30 years now. Is yeah. it because the record labels are out here, the industry, or yeah, just the nice well, weather? I, I, I moved out here initially because I, I just wanted to dive into a whole new world. At the time, I thought, like, some of the best music was being made here, and people were doing more innovative things. Um, so I just kind of, as a kid, you know, out of college, just, Dove in, moved here when I was 20, got a gig uh, at Cherokee Studios and as, as an assistant engineer and just, you know, worked my way up. Wow. Cherokee, very famous studio as well. Um, I'm friends with the Mellencamp family. He did his first big records there. Do you remember him yeah, being there? Yeah, I do remember him being there with Don Gaiman and yep. George Tutko was the engineer. And uh, yeah, Jack and Diane was done there, yep. mixed there. I think they cut it maybe at... John's home. Belmont. And is that where it was? Yeah. Well, he had a different studio before Belmont Studios in Bloomington, Indiana. That's right. Um, but yeah, as young Kenny Aronoff, too, That's on right. his first session, who's yep. probably the biggest session drummer Kenny, maybe ever. Kenny was the drummer in the band. Amazing. Have yeah. you done? He's been on the show. Have you done stuff with him oh, before? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've yeah. done stuff with everybody. Yeah. Uh, Few people, a few people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just if you look at your. I mean, I was lucky that you know I worked as as an engineer. I worked with a lot of different producers, and so you know every producer sort of had their team of maybe studio musicians that they hired all the time. So whether it was Jeff Picaro or uh, Mike Baird or um, you know whomever yeah. Keltner, you know all those guys. So it's great. You know, I really saw the 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 top of the top of LA musicians and that was definitely like a real awakening when I when I came out here uh the first few sessions I worked on it, it was Jeff Beccaro, Larry Carlton, um Chuck Rainey, um all those like just premier session musicians were on the dates and I, I just remember thinking like all the musicians that I knew from New York and Boston, they were there were some great players then, really great, you know. And 
Boston, you know, has Berkeley School of Music and New England Conservatory and, you know, puts out amazing players. But the level of musicianship here within the studio community was at a whole other level. I mean, I kind of felt like I went from playing, you know, minor league baseball to major league baseball. It was wow. it was a whole other thing. Is that kind of stem, do you think, from the Wrecking Crew in the 60s and using the same bands on every single thing? And then it's kind of... Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. I mean, those guys were the go-to guys. And, you know, and I, and I think when, you know, as a producer, when you have success working with certain musicians, of course, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you feel like it's your lucky charm or something and you want to, you know, go back and, and rehire those guys. And, you know, for, for a producer... You need somebody that is um, a chameleon that as a musician, you know, one day the session might be really pop. The next day it could be heavier rock thing then it might be a jazz thing. So you need a musician that can understand all those different styles and just easily morph into it. And also you need a personality that can bond with the artist. And the great thing about all the studio musicians here is... They're all so egoless, humble, just nice guys. And I, I've, I've seen it countless times where the artist walks in the room and five minutes later, they feel like they've known these strangers all their life and they feel excited to get in the room and, and record with them. That's, that's a real important skill for a session musician to have is that ability to to just bond with a person and and feel like they're part of their team you know yes sean hurley is the perfect example of that sean hurley is the ultimate example of that like the meekest mildest kindest guy but can play any kind of bass style and play it great with always great tone and taste in parts. And, and you know, like for me as, a, as, a, as producing a record, I, I, I've learned over the years that the less specific direction I give to a player, the better the results will be. In other words, if I said, hey, can you play this bass line and sung that bass line to them they could do that and they'd give me back just that and that nothing more yeah. and this maybe sometimes that's good but you want people to inject themselves in it you want them to um bring something special you want them to take your idea and craft it in their light you know in the way that they would would hear it the way that they would interpret it so the great thing about working with Sean or Victor Andrizzo or Matt Chamberlain or Dave Levita, all these guys who are just fantastic, Zach Ray, Roger Manning, fantastic, fantastic players, is that you can give them an idea and they run with it. They make it theirs. They go, okay, I know what you're trying to get to. Let me take it and then craft it in a way that it's kind of the voicings that I would use. Or maybe that melody you have has got some merits, but maybe it's a little cliche or maybe it's a little stiff. So let me just tweak it a little bit, do something that feels more honest to me mm-hmm. and you end up with a much more unique record that way. And it ends up also 
for me that I never repeat myself because that's really, really important. You know, if I kind of had the same thoughts for a melody or a song structure or arrangement, when you throw it out to a bunch of different people and allow them to take part in it, you end up with something so much better. This amount of responsibility that a record producer has is terrifying um, to me because it's one, you're dealing with finances. A lot of artists are coming in and they save 20000 they saved 100000 whatever it may be, and you're responsible for the budget. You're responsible for their future in a sense, and this artist might have a hit song that you think, but you produce it the wrong way or you produce it the correct way, and there's all these things that I imagine with your experience at this point, you can kind of push them aside, but you're dealing with their lives and their careers and their sound, which they're so particular about a lot of them. And that was terrifying. I think, I mean, no, some people can't handle being a record producer. They just want to engineer so they can. It's interesting. I, I, I never really, I, I do feel the weight of it. I, I will say that I do feel like every day that I come in, I've got a responsibility to that artist to make it as great as I can possibly make it, especially when it comes to, to new artists, because, you know, kind of like you say, they don't really have their sound defined yet. So they're kind of looking to you to, to help them. And that can be tough sometimes. And I, I, I really make it a point to try to work with people now that do have a good sense of who they are as artists, because otherwise I can point them in a direction, but if it's not really true to them, if it's not comfortable to them, ultimately they're not going to feel great being there. They're going to kind of rebel against it or they're going to waffle and bounce all over the place and try five different things before they find that thing, that, that comfortable sound for them. So it's really, really important for me now to kind of, when I meet with an artist and talk to them about working together, to get a sense of like how clear they are on that vision of what they want for the record. No matter how big the artist is or how new the artist is, I always really, you know, make it a point to discuss like, well, what do you want out of this record? And Gosh. what do you want it to sound like? And what, what, or even if they don't know that, I'll make it a point to say, well, what, what don't you want it to sound like? You know, what are your fears? What if you're afraid of sounding too heavy or too uh, syrupy or whatever it might be? Uh, I really try to get a lot of that art of them uh, and, and have them really verbalize and own what they want to sound like, you know? Um, I think it makes it makes my job way easier yeah. when they know what they're they want. And sometimes they don't have any clue, and that's why they're coming to you, and they'll shoot down every idea. But then there's other artists like Clem, who knows Cherry Glazer, who also has been on this show, and I adore. You did her biggest record, and what you did with her demos to the finished product is amazing. Was that what was that like working with her? Real quick, she she's a blast. She's she's the sweetest person in the world a badass guitar player. She's so good. I mean, when you look at her, and even when you look at her with a guitar in her hand, you just, something about her, her whole presence, you don't really feel like 
she's going to kill when she picks up a guitar, but she does. She's incredible. Um, it was really fun working with her and Sasami and Tabor and everybody in the band. They were really great. We spent uh, uh, probably about a week or so at downtown rehearsal, really going through song arrangements and uh, really defining all the parts before we even came in here. And that was a fun record, too, because I made it with Carlos De La Garza. We did it together, and Carlos is great. He and I have done a number of, yeah, uh, he, we've done a number of things together and he's a great engineer great great musician and um, it was really fun for me to collaborate with somebody like that he had done the previous two Cherry Glazer records oh, I didn't know that yeah and he brought me in because he felt like they wanted to step it up a little bit and he felt like he was almost um in a rut with them, if you will, that he just needed some like fresh opinions and fresh ideas on where it could go. So that's yeah. kind of where I came in, in terms of like really working out bass and drum grooves with them. And, um, you know, Clem really, really has a sound. And like I say, she's a great player so it was you know i think we experimented a bit um you know using two guitar amps in here back in the iso booth there and um you know definitely a lot of doubling of parts and things that she hadn't done in the past but she, she's a great artist she's wonderful and the personality is just the funnest thing to be around you yeah. had her when she was like 18 weren't you or 20 maybe i think she was about 20 yeah yeah she's yeah. incredible and she's yeah. you Got, did that in this room we did it here studio one sunset sound yeah. which was my home as you know for 10 12 years now something like wow, that Wow, it's been that long uh if you want to listen to cherry glazer and a song joe did with her told you i'd be with the guys throw that track on it's a banger i love that that whole record's good. Um, what is that called? Apocalypto? Uh, Apocalyptic. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> She's amazing. Um, yeah, Sunset Sound, Studio One, obviously built in 1958 for Disney. 62 goes online. Public, hook up with A&M, Electra Records. And for those that don't know, I'm sitting two feet away from where Mercedes-Benz Janis Joplin was done. Eruption Van Halen was tracked right here. The Doors' first six records were all worked on in here. I mean, Rolling Stones, Van Halen 1, Doobie Brothers. I mean, name me three of your favorite records you've made. Not favorite, but three records you've done in here that uh, mean a lot to well, you. Well, you know, it's funny. When you asked me to do this, I was thinking about the very first time oh, cool. I was in Sunset Sound, which was early 80s with Frank Zappa. Um, we were working on a number of records at the same time. And, um, you know, he was working, one day we'd work at the record plant, the next day we'd be at the village, we'd be at Cherokee, we'd be wherever. And uh, we came in here and did a lot of different overdubs for a few different albums. And he loved this place because he felt like it was a place that you really got down to work at that, you know, at the time, the record plant and a lot of those other studios really had a reputation of being like kind of the party place. You know, there were a lot of distractions and he just felt like he came in here, got down to work, 
and then went home and he loved that. He felt he was like so productive when he got here. Yeah. He um, didn't drink or drug or do anything. That's no, what people no, don't Frank, a lot of Frank, people don't. Frank know. was totally straight. And in fact, if you were in the band and ever got caught with pot or whatever, you'd be out of the band. Yeah. yeah. No, and did was, hot rats in nineteen sixty nine in studio too. Wow. You knew that, right? No, I knew he was here prior to when I worked with him in the 80s, but uh, I didn't know Hot Rats was done in two. Here in TTG. Wow. Um, But please continue on. Yeah. And then, uh, so then I was thinking after that, then I think the next project I did here was um, this band from Canada uh, called Red Rider. And they had a huge hit that we cut right here um, called Lunatic Fringe. It's still kind of all over the airwaves. Um, But I remember what the drums were here in the live room, sort of in the back of the room, which is, it's funny, it's a spot that I never use anymore, but for whatever reasons, we had the drums in the back of the room and um, I think maybe guitar amps in the piano booth or in the in the vocal booth here. and That uh, over there, though? Yeah, right by the I've mic. I've never panel. seen anyone put no, them there in four I, years. I, I, I don't know why. I think um, at the time... I was probably always thinking, get the drums where you have the longest throw, so the longest distance for the room mics. So I remember putting them in the back of the room. And um, it's not like it's a big, bombastic drum sound or anything, but um, I do remember, you know, so my experience with consoles and sound you know for the most part before i came here was really working at cherokee which had had a trident a range console which is pretty pretty fat console and um doing the red rider stuff we tracked it all here then we went to a little studio in the valley that had a trident tsm console but i remember leaving here with the tracks and hearing them over there thinking like, wow, this stuff sounds really thick and powerful. And, and that was the, the custom build. Oh, the Bushnell. Console, the Bushnell. That's right. That's yeah. what I was trying to think of the name. Um, it was the old custom built Bushnell console API. with the API EQs in it. The monitor mixer was over on the side, similar to studio three's console. Yeah. Um, but man, it sounded punchy and, um, yeah, and it still holds up when I hear it on the radio today. You know, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. T Bone Burnett bought that console. That's uh, right, and obviously yeah. did a ton of uh, amazing, tremendous work on it after I left here. But that's <clears throat> I didn't realize that was the, one of the first things you did here. Yeah, I, that, was, that was one of the first records I ever did. Actually, it was probably the second or third album I ever engineered. Um, I, I've known you for a few years, and I everybody knows you did. Joe's Garage, Frank Zappa, when you were 20 years old as an assistant, that was at Capitol. There's 300 interviews if you want to hear Joe talk about Frank Zappa, Joe's Garage. But, you know, you having your official room here at Sunset and then you do your all your tracking here in Studio One and bounce all over the world. You're going to France in a couple of weeks. I just saw you in Nashville last weekend. When you're starting off, what was one of the first big records that you heard your sounds on the radio or something that really just fueled you to kind of be like, this is this is awesome. I want to produce records for the rest of my life. Well, I, I think the fuel is 
The fuel, I think, is getting it right. You know, I, I still, I still don't feel like I've gotten it right. You know, I, hundreds of records later, I still feel like ah, I could have done that better. I could have got a better performance out of them. I could have got a better guitar sound, or the mix could have been better, or whatever. I, I don't really ever feel like I've made that perfect record. You know, the yeah. I, I don't know. Talking Heads or what, whatever those those albums that are timeless that that I love and live by. I, I don't really feel like I've ever made one of those. Maybe you know, there's a song on a record that I think that all fell into place and that just you know turned out great. Um, but a, an album top to bottom. 10 cuts with a singular vision and great performances and great mixes. I don't, I don't think I've got there yet. Is that you though? Just your inner maybe insecurity or just being so meticulous and an expert where you never will feel that? It's all those things, you know, and you know, that combined with perhaps whatever the artist doesn't like about the record, you know, artists are just like producers and engineers and musicians, you know, they're, they're all perfectionists and, you know, they, they're looking for a certain thing in the album they do and you try your best to get inside their head and decipher it and bring it out of them, but you don't always quite get there. And, you know, plus there's the, the factor that it certainly takes me two to three years to get away from a project, to have any sense of objectivity from it. So when I hear something like when I heard those early records I made on the radio, I, if I were in the car, I would click it off instantly. I yep. couldn't, I, I couldn't stand to hear it. And I was always left with the feeling, you know, you hear two seconds of it on the radio and you think, oh, no, it's not as loud as the song that was there before, or it doesn't have much, as much bottom end as the song that was just previously playing. Oh, no. And, and you know, so it, that's the fuel. That's what keeps yeah. you going. You think, oh, God, the vocal was too loud, or all, all those things. You know, I, I, I got to get it better. Got to get it better. Wow, I love that. I was just going through hard drives, and I was looking at some old folders of work, and I'm like, oh, God, I should just throw that away. That was a disaster day, and... Have you had artists where you've thought you've done an amazing job and they just rip your work and art to shreds and it just destroys you? Because that would, you're an artist, you're a producer, you're also a musician. You started off as a musician, you're an engineer, one of the best ever. But when somebody really gives you shit about the production, a mix, it, it hurts. Oh, of course you take it personally. Yeah. But, you know, you, you have to step back and start to think, like, okay, well, what is it that I didn't? understand what is it that I didn't get and you know sometimes it's really just the artist's um, insecurity or the artist not really signing on to that vision you know like I said earlier if they're not decisive in what they want it's hard for anybody around them to to be decisive um they've got to really be clear on where they're going with the record and and be able to verbalize that um and if they're not, they've at least then got to say, you know what? I'm not exactly clear where this record should be. I trust you. 
take it where you want to take it. And if it's really not working for me, if it's uncomfortable for me, I'll tell you and then we'll take a step back. Um, but when people aren't confident within themselves, that's when it's really difficult to work with them. And I think that's the key to, to great records is people trusting each other in the relationship, being confident that they made the right choice in hiring you and letting you do your thing. And also being able to speak up if they don't like it, because I, I love being told like, um, yeah, that's that's not it. I, I, I really would love it to be more like this because then you're like, okay, great. I know where to go now. Oh, cool. Okay. I've really felt good about going here, but now I see exactly more specifically, you know, what, what red is to you because red is this to me, but your red is a little different. And um, so... Yeah, I think having that communication, that understanding and trust is is really, really important. I mean, the um, the the records that I've made that I've felt like I've sort of bonded with the artist and we're on the same page, I, I think those are the most successful ones that I've made. Sure. I don't mean financially, but artistically successful. Do you ever yeah. produce according to the times or the industry where it's like an artist comes in, they have a, a, a great set of demos and you're like, I need to make this sound like what's relevant right now. I mean, I, I think, need to give this country song a hip hop bottom end kind of thing. And is that, or do you just do what's best for their sound regardless of what's going on in 2023 or 1983? No, I, I think you do what's best for them, but I, I think you can't help but be influenced by the times that you live in. I mean, you know, I listen to music all the time. You know, my drive home is is an hour. I listen to, you know, Sirius or whatever I'm listening to uh, on the way to and from work. And I'm listening to demos in the early morning before I start my sessions. So I'm constantly affected by what's going on musically in the time that we're living in. So I think you can't help that, you know? And yes, there are trends, um, whether it is, yeah, because we've had 30 years of hip hop, uh, there's, there's records are, are bigger on the bottom now. They're punchier. They're more aggressive in terms of the low end than, than they ever were. So I think that kind of carries over into, Every genre of music, I think you want to do something that's sort of competitive in that that sense. And, you know, now you look at pop records and even song structure has changed. There's no intros on records, not hardly ever a bridge. Get to that chorus. It's like endless choruses. And, you know, it, it's funny because sometimes like a manager or A&R person will come in and go, maybe you don't need that intro or maybe you don't need that re-intro or, yeah. or you know, what is this? This 410? Oh, you got to get it down to 330. Lose all those instrumental bits. And you know, for me, the instrumental sections are kind of, especially for a band, that's where you identify who you are. That's where you put in the quirky sound or the melodic lick or the the unique groove that really makes you stand out from another artist. So, you know, when somebody comes in and, you know, wants you to 
chop off something that's really like the signature. It's kind of like, you know, telling Eve Klein, like, eh, I don't know, maybe you want to use a little different shade blue. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what? Are you crazy? <laughs> there's a lot of great A&R guys, and I'm sure you've worked with a ton of them, but there's also a lot that are 24 out of college, don't even know how to play an instrument, and they come in and tell you, yeah, maybe you should turn the hi-hat down a little bit. You know, how do you handle that? <clears throat> I mean, I, I've had I've had great A and R people to deal with. The, the good thing for me is when I have a great A and R guy that I can bounce things off. He hears things that I don't hear. You know, part of part of the job of producer is being objective, really giving yourself distance from the project and seeing the overall. While at the same time you're diving into the details and making sure everything is perfect, but you really gotta have a sense of is the big picture working or not and the fact that you're so vested and so deeply entwined in the project you can only have so much distance um that's a nice thing with projects now they they take forever to complete so sometimes you're working on something then you take two weeks off from it to go work on another project. When you come back to the other project, you've gained a little bit more objectivity, which is a great thing. But what a good A&R person can offer you is that feedback that you can't give because you're working on the project day in and day out. And he's heard it once or twice over the last two months. And he'll hear things differently than what, what you hear. So, Having somebody in the creative team, that's a big plus, really big plus. I mean, the danger with somebody that is not as experienced as an A&R person is that they may, in a sense, have other motives, meaning they want to hit so they can advance in their job. So they're desperately trying to take that artist and sort of contemporize them, if you will, make them sound like other artists at the moment that it, that's out in the world. And that's always a little dangerous. But the good thing is somebody that's younger is hearing through a much different lens than me and will have different criteria and different um things they expect out of a vocal or out of a drum beat. Um, so it's kind of like if you got the right person involved, it's pretty great having more feedback. Dave Rath, friend of both of ours. He yes. was at Roadrunner when you did Young when, the Giant, correct? Yep, so you absolutely. were working with him as A&R for Young the Giant's first record, which is their biggest ever, had all the big hits on it, My Body, Cough Syrup, Apartment. That would uh, was that your A and R guy? Yes, Dave. Did he bring Dave. them to you? Or you discovered them? No, I, I didn't really discover them. They came to me. They were called Two Jakes. Yep. And they'd heard a couple of records I did and liked them, and called me just out of the blue. I don't know how they got my number, but just called me and said that you know they wanted to work with me, and I was flattered. And I said, you know, send me some demos. And they sent me a few songs and, uh, my body wasn't in there. Cough syrup was, and I remember, uh, really liking it as well as some of the other songs that they sent. And at the time they weren't signed. 
And I just said, you know, guys, I don't know if I can get involved with something that's unsigned. You know, if you end up getting a record deal and having a budget, then, you know, let's talk again. And then six months later, they called me. Maybe it was, feels like it wasn't even six months. Maybe it was four months later. They called me and said, yeah, we got this deal on Roadrunner and we want to make a record. So I was like, great. Okay. Awesome. So, um, you know, the, the fun part about that, record was that, um, again, just like talking about the Cherry Glazer record, we spent a lot of time in pre-production, much more than uh, the Cherry Glazer. The guys had an apartment down the street uh, here right by Guitar Center on Sunset. And, you know, we camped out there that I don't know how they were maybe living there six months before we actually got into the studio and sometimes I go up there, spend a day, three days, sometimes, you know, a couple of hours, check in, hear the new material, you know, offer some feedback, but a lot, a lot of time was spent outside the studio getting all those arrangements. Right. And the other thing was that Francois was really not a drummer. He was a percussion student. He was like studying classical orchestral percussion. So, I mean, he understood beats and grooves and sounds and all, but he wasn't really like a day-to-day rock drummer laying down rock beats. So it was kind of new to him to, to really have to be heavy-handed and dig in and kind of play straight beats So there was a learning curve for him. The great thing is coming from a sense of orchestral percussion, he heard things very differently. And his sense of beats were very different than your typical rock drummer would be. So I remember it was always like trying to find a place where the part felt comfortable to Francois, it was something that he could own and something he could physically play. But at the same time, it had to be something that was driving and powerful enough that it really gave the song the the groove and momentum that it needed. Um, And uh, yeah, and then there was a lot of finessing of guitar parts. Um, Sometimes the guys really didn't have a sense of who was playing what. And, you know, when you're in a band and you're used to rehearsing in a little rehearsal room, everything's loud. You really can't hear all the parts. You don't know really what's going on. You're just doing your thing. And then when you actually sit there and dissect the part, you go, well, do you realize you're kind of doubling up the rhythm here and it's actually making the track sound smaller or maybe you could play it in a different register, different octave, um, or maybe you you lay out here and let him take it here and that actually makes the record sound bigger for that moment. So all those little things were worked out before they came in here. So when they came in here, it was kind of a... Um, process of really getting great sounds and great performances. I mean, certainly some parts were tweaked, you know, here in the studio, but um, uh, yeah, a lot of it was worked out uh, outside the room. I'm I'm actually just remembering now that I had Samir standing right here uh, next to the drum kit. Do you have a picture of that? Yeah. those sessions? Really? I'll put it up. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's great. Yeah. And we used like, um, I mean, the vocals he did in the room with the band, um, I think we redid all those. Maybe one or two songs. Um, 
uh, Islands, maybe that was a live in the studio vocal. Um, I think we end up using like a Sony C37A mic on his voice, maybe sometimes an SM7. Um, but yeah, I, I remember him. So he tracked right, right out here on the vocals on the floor. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing! Yeah, but they were guides. They were guide vocals, but maybe some of the more chill songs where the sorry, some of the more chill songs where the bleed of the drums wouldn't be that severe. We actually used bits, um, and I'm never afraid of that. I'll comp between a live vocal and a overdub vocal and get the sound as close as possible and you know it's about the performance it's what sounds the most exciting yeah um what's that do for you though so young the giant they're college kids they're coming down here to kind of make a record no record label um at the time but then they become massive they're on every festival they're blazing through the college market for you as a producer to know them when they really don't know what they're doing kind of and just have a, a desire and you know some talent but then to see them touring the globe playing for a hundred thousand people it's fantastic it's got to be so fulfilling for you to even <clears throat> be a part of that yeah, yeah. It, it, i mean I, I remember when the record took off um you know my manager at the time would keep me updated and he you know called me one day and go hey did you know that my body is number 20 or, you know, you know, you guys sold 75,000 records already or all those kind of things. But it, I didn't, not sound jaded, but I, I was like, oh yeah, that's nice. Oh, great, great. You know, I, I don't get that caught up in it, you know? Yeah. Um, but it was really, really great to see them after the fact doing shows. In fact, I remember being up in Portland, Oregon for a project and they were uh, playing the uh, Wonder Ballroom, I think, not the Wonder Ballroom, the Crystal Ballroom um, there and seeing a show and it was all ages. And just to see all these little girls going nuts over Samir and knowing all the words to the songs, like, and, and the record had only been out I don't know, a few months. Wow. And they were, you know, these crazed fans. That was that was pretty, pretty impressive. That album is such a, a pinnacle of the times, too, because it was just kind of, there was like Wilco, Young the Giant, and festivals were so big then and fun and yeah. cool, and they just yeah. immediately went off. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really nice to see. They're like kind of a staple now at Modern Rock Radio. I mean, they always have a song on the charts. It's really, really great to see yeah. them and up they, there. And, and the streaming just gets like bigger and bigger. And, you know, there's some placement all the time for my body um, or, or cough syrup. It's, yeah. it's great when, when you see that happen years later that a song still has that much life and power in it. Um, you know, Jason Mraz that would that we did here in this this room. Love uh, is a four-letter word was the record. Love is a four-letter word. Got a Grammy too, right? We were nominated for Best Engineered, Tony Maserati and myself, but we didn't win. Um, 
but it was it was really a great experience. I mean, it was all you know, really studio musicians. Matt Chamberlain, Justin Mills Johnson played bass. Uh, Jeff Babco keyboards. Tim Pierce played guitar. It was Holy all. Shit. It was just like the best guys, the best crew of people. Every day was just silliness here in the studio, and um, the most interesting and the most incredible thing about it first of all i mean jason's like the chillest sweetest guy in the world with the most beautiful voice and who can just sing like that day in and day out it's just effortless for him i mean i I shouldn't say that he works hard at it and um but he can deliver those vocals and background vocals every day but the interesting thing was um you know um I won't give up, which was the the biggest single from the record, was cut here on a Saturday afternoon. He had been we had finished most of the record, and he was out on tour. I think he was I don't know where he was, but he was out on tour. Came back in town. We had already done a version of the tune that was sort of a more up-tempo, blue-eyed soul version. And after the record company heard it and after Jason discussed it with the record label, we decided we would do a rather acoustic version of the tune that was actually going to just be a sort of teaser version for uh, to announce the, the release of the record and sort of something for his fans to to dig into knowing that the record would be out in a few months. Uh And so we came in here on a Saturday, same players cut the track in a matter of hour, two hours, did a couple of little overdubs. Jason did the vocal and now Jason had just come off the road weeks on the road singing it was just him and his percussionist on the road. So he's kind of carrying the load for all the shows. And I, I thought at the time, it was like four o'clock in the afternoon, I think we did the vocal. And I thought at the time, like, wow, maybe not his best vocal because all the, the other vocals on the record were were just really pristine and perfect. And this, he was a little sort of ragged, shall we say. And um, I remember playing it for the A&R guy and then for the president of the label, and I was nervous that maybe it wasn't up to the snuff of all the other vocals we had done on the record. And I thought he sounded a little vulnerable, maybe almost a little too weak. And the brilliance of Craig Kalman and Sam Reebok, after they heard the vocal, they were like, you know what? You're right. It's maybe not his strongest vocal. Maybe his tone isn't as beautiful as some of the others. But the weakness of it almost makes it a little more vulnerable, a little more compelling, a little bit more believable. And we were under a huge time pressure crunch to get the song done and out. So they were like, look, let's just run with it. And the thing I remember is it seemed like a week later, you know, a week after release, they were 
two days after release, I think they were at 60,000 downloads. Uh, A week after release, they were at 250,000 downloads. And I'm not talking streams. I'm talking like physical downloads. And the next thing you know, in a matter of, a week, two weeks, it's it's a runaway hit. And that's the acoustic version of the tune that was really meant to just be this little introductory, Promo almost piece. throwaway track. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, today I think it's at 7 million sales. Uh, <laughs> the, I think that the song is probably at a, you know, billion or so streams, you know. So you just never know, you know. So that, that Saturday afternoon, you know, yielded this, just huge hit for Jason. So that's, that's an amazing thing. That's a, a, a an amazing phenomenon, you know? Yeah, yeah. So you just never, ever know. Like sometimes you come in and you labor over stuff and you're really proud of it and every detail is perfect and you think this is the best record ever. Everybody's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> what happened to the original version that had... We actually ended up with about three or four different versions of the tune because it became such a sort of runaway hit. Different territories wanted different styles. We actually had a pop version of it. We had a blue-eyed soul version. We had the acoustic version. I think I even morphed together a few of those versions. Uh, I think we had one where there was like a, a stronger kick drum going all through it. There were about five different versions of the tunes to feed different radio markets and playlists and all. That's incredible. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah, and no, it's, it's it's amazing. So you know, there, there's there's a lot of magic that's that's happened in this room for me. Um, you know, we've talked about the Grace Kelly thing, where same same deal. You know, that song went down pretty quickly. Um, maybe you know the the track and the vocal happened in a day, and a couple of overdubs the next day. I can't quite remember, but um, really, really quick and often the the best things go down when you're really not thinking about them too much you know when you're when you don't hold on so tightly when you aren't trying so hard when you just kind of let stuff happen sometimes that's the best we as humans we all have imperfections we're all fucked up we all do things we don't want to, but let's say you're having an argument with your wife or a friend and you have to come in the studio at 10 a.m. and work with uh, Rufus Wainwright. How do you, I I can't do that. I need to have, even on my way here, I want to be sharp. You're my friend and we work here at Sunset uh, in close proximity, but I want to be sharp. I need to be, feel good about just talking with you. How do you put personal stuff aside when you have to come in here and there's a charm element of being a producer. There's a, a calm uh, portion of the pie that is so instrumental. How do you put things aside to be professional? Yeah, it can be tough sometimes. I do think you have to um, learn to compartmentalize things. Yeah. I think that that's part of it that you really do have to leave all that outside the room unless you know you sometimes you're you're working with an artist who you're really close with and you can kind of share those things and it actually you know makes the bond between you even tighter um but you know a lot of times you really have to walk in and you know put on that producer face and you know be the cheerleader be the optimist and just 
you know, full speed ahead. What's the common thread when you're working with Elton John or Cherry Glazer? What's the common thread that producing a record is going to be for any genre artist, any personality that you've found over your decades of work? It's getting out of the way and getting out of the way of yourself, getting out of the way of the artist, just letting it happen, knowing when to step in, you know, knowing when to sort of raise your hand and say, Hey, what about, or I'm not sure if this is working. Um, you know, I think I've made the mistake on a number of projects of being, you know, too tight about the the production and holding on to every detail and being so microscopic that um, I drove myself crazy and drove the artist crazy. Um, so I, I think there's a way that you got to find a balance between letting go, letting things happen naturally, creating an environment where no matter what stress you're under, people don't see that you're under all that stress, whether it's the record company or something else in your life that's going on, you got to keep that away from people because then it starts to mess with their own creativity, their own vibe, their own flow in the studio. So, yeah, uh, that can be tricky. But I I do think, like, you know, I was lucky in that that I, I got to work with a lot of those really great, old school record producers as a, as a young assistant engineer, like everybody from George Martin and Jerry Wexler and and just countless others, Ken Scott and Frank Zappa even. And, you know, I saw at times how when things were going smoothly, they just made sure they kept on going smoothly. But when, Things got on the wrong tangent or weren't going right or didn't fit the direction that they were trying to go in. That's when they'd just gently do a couple of things to get things back on track. And they always did it with such grace and and were just such gentlemen about it and so invisible about it, you know, not like, Hey, I'm going to fix this. I'll I'll get this back on. It was just, they'd say a couple of words. And then the next thing you knew, everything was great, smooth sailing. And you forgot about that last hour where everybody was lost, you know? Yeah. Uh, Pretty amazing. Uh, They were really, really incredible. Uh, Another producer named Greg Wells says sometimes he's weary about too much pre-production. He said that first take when you get in the room is just magical always. You, on the other hand, love pre-production. With bands especially. Yes. Um, You know, the Jason Mraz stuff, there was no pre-production because it was all studio musicians. And the great thing about players that are that experienced, you can say, hey, let's try this, let's try that. And on a dime, they can change and try different things. Where a band that has its own sound, has its own democracy, uh, you got to kind of slowly work towards a place. So I I do tend to do much, much more pre-production with an actual rock band, if you will, uh, than I would a solo artist that's just coming in with outside musicians. Uh, Sometimes I've done uh, pre-production in those situations, but uh, it's... it's, um, 
more important for me with bands. I mean, you know, the thing with Greg and, you know, I love Greg. He is just one of the most talented producers, songwriters, musicians. He's just a force of nature. Mm -hmm. And with Greg, he's so intuitive that you got to stay out of the way. You know, you got to like have the drum sound before he sits down to play and have a piano sound when he's going out there and noodling on piano just to get his fingers warmed up. You got to get a piano sound in five minutes because chances are, you know, he's going to do it in the first take. Yeah. I remember a situation years ago here with Ben Montench um, on a Lone Justice album that I did here at Sunset Sound. Amazing pe- pe- keyboard piano player, did played with Tom, Tom Petty. Tom and Heartbreakers. Yes, yep. exactly. And so many studio albums he's played on, Dixie Chicks and Ryan so many Adams. different things. Yeah. And um, I remember this was analog tape. And I remember rolling the track. Ben Mon said, just, just roll it. I think I got a sense of the, the form of it now. Just kind of roll the track. And I remember he played something in the intro that was so great. And he made it a point to tell me before we started, don't record this. I'm just going to fuck around. I'm probably going to make a lot of mistakes. Don't record this. And the first four bars of the intro went by. And what he played was so magnificent. I was like, I don't care what this guy said. I'm throwing this record. And he got through the whole track. It was brilliant. And then he went, by any chance, did you record that? And I said, yeah, Benmon, it was pretty great. I, I, I didn't get the intro, but I got everything else. I got the second half of the intro. Maybe you can figure out what you played in the first half based on that. And he said, oh, thank you. We, we went back, listened to the you know three or four bars I'd captured of the intro, figured out what the part was. We punched in the intro. And that was it. But, wow. you know, players like that, their, their first impression is, is going to be the magic. Not always, but a lot of times. What do you do when you're producing a record and the demos are just as good, are, are good enough to just be the master? I mean, the right thing now, they're the master. Yeah. You just take the demo and you you work on them. Does the you producer know? mind of you feel like, ah, I got to get in here and fuck with this a little bit? Of course bit, you just do. To, of course you do. Yeah, yeah. you, you want to own it. You want to be a part of it. But, um, you know, the great thing now is everybody's got the same technology. Everybody's got some system at home that they can build great demos. And, you know, maybe you replace the drum sounds or maybe you redo a part here and there for a better sound, a better performance or whatever it is. But yeah. there's no such thing as a demo anymore. What, what do you look for in demos? You, for decades, have been listening to demos, and you have a career that you've actually broke so many bands based on your instincts. What do you look for in demos? And please just don't say different. It's a vibe. <laughs> no, it's a vibe. Gotcha. You just kind of, I don't know. It's like you read a great book. You it hits see you. It's a great movie. It just exactly. does, connects with you in some way. And, and I think, you know, you, you got to feel like, well, if I'm this affected by this, then 
chances are a lot of other people will be similarly That's simple. Affected. Does it move you? Does it touch you? Yes, I yeah. love that. God, you need to be reminded of that. Do you ever feel, though, you're listening to something and you it might not move you, but you're like, this would do really well in the marketplace right now. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, and the There's other, the opposite, the opposite happens too. There's something that, you know, I get. And I, I think producers can hear very raw demos that perhaps and our people can't hear or the average listener can't hear. I think they can kind of see through it. They can see the steps that they need to take to get it to a place of a more finished record, a more a presentation that people will understand a little better. Um, so I, I can hear things in a very raw form and instantly go, whoa, there's a vibe here. There's something going on here. There's, there's a, the heart here you know there's just something that's coming through the speakers that touches me and it doesn't matter how rough the production is or unfinished you just kind of know you know and and there have been a number of of artists that over the years um you know that i've heard in those sort of embryonic states who have you know gone on to get record deals and what you're about to hear is one of the greatest stories ever. Speaking <laughs> of demos, you were selling some Anvil cases in Easy Reader magazine or something. <clears throat> or? There was a, there used to be a, a recycler magazine, which was basically like the Craigslist on paper yeah. in the in the nineties. You so know? you're selling these cases. Somebody calls you to buy the cases. You go and meet up. You drive over, thinking nothing of it. They find out that you're a record producer, a successful one, and they say, oh my gosh, let me play, let me give you this tape of a band. The band's name is Weezer. And you say, okay, the guy was nice. I'm going to put this tape here. I'll take it from him. Go. <laughs> all, all true, all true. Uh, Matt Sharp came over to the studio I was working at to buy some anvil cases and said, hey, can I give you my band's tape? And he gave me the tape, and the tape sat in the side pocket of my car for a couple of weeks. Um, I had every intention to listen to it, but I didn't get around to it right away. And one day I was going to take the car in for a car wash, and I thought, oh, I should listen to this or just organize the stuff in the side pockets. And it was a Saturday morning. I'll <laughs> never forget. I, I put the cassette in and, you know, sweater song and all those classics were, were on there. And I was just, what the hell? And I immediately right then it was like 11 o'clock in the morning called up Matt and said, Hey, this stuff is great. I, I want to hear your band. I want to meet your band. And he said, oh, we all live in this house in West LA. You know, come on over. So I think that afternoon I went right over and they all had this house that they lived and practiced in. They had the garage tricked out as a rehearsal room. And, um, you know, so I followed them around town for a while. Many gigs brought a dozen A&R people down to shows. Most A&R people didn't get it. Nine out of ten wow, did yeah, not get it. Um, they felt like the vocals were a little too rough or, you know, uh, the, I mean, the band was new. It was 
they were six months maybe alive in the clubs at that point, you know. And but I, I championed them for the longest time until finally uh, somebody at Geffen Records had heard about it and they got involved and eventually signed the band. But I had maybe I had uh, one small label, Enigma Restless Records, interested at the time, but most of the majors didn't get it. Even some of the majors said, I don't hear the songs. And I was kind of like, what? <laughs> yeah, how can you not hear those songs? This is songs? like Say It Ain't So was on those demos. Say It Ain't So. Everything but Buddy Holly. Buddy Holly they wrote later. But all those tunes were there. That was their breakout hit, right? Yeah. Buddy Holly? Yeah. yeah. Same thing, you know, a few years prior to that, uh, I had... Through, uh, I had engineered, co-produced a Pat Benatar record, and Patty's manager had this new band from the South that he was championing and sent me the songs. He said, I can't get this band arrested. They play these frat parties and these clubs down in the Carolinas, and they're blowing up, but I, I I cannot get them a record deal. Will you listen to this stuff and see what you think? And he sent me this tape, and I was just like, wow, these songs are great. I, I kind of said, you know, Rick, it's, it's a little straight for my musical taste, but I, I think these songs are hits. I love this guy's voice. I think it's great. Let me send it around to people. I sent it around to a bunch of record labels, spent six, nine months trying to get something going for them. No one wanted it. No one wanted it until they made such a huge scene in the Southeast kind of college circuit that record companies started to see the numbers that were showing up at their gigs and Atlantic Records sent down an A&R person to see one of the shows and that was Hootie and the Blowfish. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's, you, you hear a demo, you just get that feeling like, you know, that's wild. I think a lot of people are going to like this song, you know? That was crazy. Because that was like Dave Matthews, too. You know, the tape Same trading thing. thing in the 90s. And, like, you know, yep. that they even took the Grateful Dead, Dave Matthews Band, took the Grateful Dead approach of live taping at their shows. They encouraged it because of right. all the tape trading in the colleges. And Everybody the dubbing. knew of it. Yep. The whole southeast of the country lived this band before Every, anybody outside that region knew of them. Yep. And their manager for the Dave Matthews Band, who I'm interviewing next week, is Corin Capshaw, yep. who owned a little nightclub called Tracks, and now he's one of the most powerful people in the music industry yep. with ACO Records, Red Light Management, who has everybody on there, and he's... Alabama uh, Shakes and so many other things yeah. over the years. My Morning Jacket. So yep. many other things that, that, that they've found and developed. Great label. Great manager. Um, ah... That's all we need to do for that. Icky Thump, White Stripes, you engineer the whole record. Jack produces it. It's one of the greatest things, not just in music, but in the world ever. For me, I, I've listened to that song, the title track, Icky Thump, maybe 400 million times, uh, six times today. The kick drum on that I feel like I'm in the movie Braveheart and we're going out to <laughs> battle, battle and avenge our fallen brother's deaths and it's just boom, boom, boom. The story of how you met Jack White, the demos, how you guys went into Nashville, Tennessee, Blackbird Studio D, which we were just at last weekend or uh, for John McBride's amazing platform. 
How did Jack contact you? Um, or how did you meet Jack White? I, I met Jack through his manager, Ian Montone. Ian was managing The Shins, who I just produced an album for. Wow. And um, Ian was kind enough to really love that Wincing the Night Away album that I did for The Shins and said, hey, I, I want to introduce you to Jack White. And Jack called me up and said, hey, you know, um, I have to do this solo track. It's a Hank Williams song where they found a manuscript. They found a number of manuscripts um, of unfinished Hank Williams songs where he wrote the lyrics but never recorded anything. So it was up to Jack to actually come up with the chord changes and, and the melody and, and really finish the song. And, yeah, it was pretty amazing. What Dylan, song was that? Bob Dylan, what's that? Well, that's old Crow Medicine show, what they did with the Bob Dylan lyrics, too. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. Similar kind of thing. That's right. But what song was the Jack White track? Uh, you Don't Know, I think, was the name of it. Okay. Um, and, um, yeah, so we went into Blackbird for a day or so and did this track to uh he had a two inch eight track machine that sounds amazing one of a kind machine and recorded it live to that and um you know jack and i got on just great and uh you know called me there after and said hey i gotta do a white stripes record are you interested in doing it and of course being a fan i was like yeah you know Fuck. i'd love to take a part of that <laughs> so they're in detroit then right uh, Jack had already moved to Nashville. Uh, Meg was still in Detroit. Yeah. The White Stripes, the partnership between them two is obviously one of the greatest things ever. The groove that they created is so iconic. How do you describe Meg and Jack White? Just perfect musical chemistry. She fully understood where he wants to go with a tune where he wants to go with the dynamics, the tempo, the groove. They were just so locked. You know, when you're in the studio and there's great players, great connection between the players, this thing happens that's bigger than everybody that's a part of it. It just magnifies it sounds like God. It just sounds amazing. And there have been a number of times Elton John and other people I've worked with where I've had that sensation of like, what just happened? How is that possible? You know, a minute ago it sounded like rubble and you don't know where you're going. And then the next thing, it just all connects and boom, it's magical. Meg and Jack when they were on, just no one will ever be the White Stripes other than the two of them. Yeah. It's just a pretty incredible combination. The simplicity of her parts and the power uh, and her ability to just float with him tempo-wise, it, it, it was just magical, really, really magical every day. Do you so he's with Daru Jones now, who's a fucking amazing drummer, but completely different, different than Meg. Whole different thing, whole different sound, whole different vibe. I, I love his drumming. I think he's really inventive and got got a groove and just comes from a whole other place. And 
Jack sounds great with him, but he sounds different. He doesn't sound like the same Jack White in the White yeah. Stripes. He's what if you had Daru Jones and, and Studio D and Icky Thump? What would that rec- what kind of record would that have been? Yeah, it would have definitely been a, a more active groove. It would have been a busier, maybe edgier, maybe you know, part of it is the the magic of that is it's so back on the beat. It's so the thing that gives it the power is that it's just got so much tension in there. Yeah. And um you know, with another drummer, it's just a different thing. You know, when I recorded the Raconteurs with Jack, Patrick Keeler is a fantastic drummer. He's like Keith Moon or something. He's really one of the best drummers I've ever recorded. And But it's really different. It, it would never be the White Stripes. It just wouldn't be that tone. How much pre-production did you do on Icky Thump the whole, the, for the I whole mean, record? Were you in Detroit then going up and no, seeing them? No, no, or? no. They, they, they did a couple of afternoons, I think, at Jack's house, just rehearsing the tunes, him showing Meg the riffs. And, um, you know, it was pretty much all done in the studio. I mean, the great thing that, that I love uh, about Jack or Elton John or anybody that really works fast. It forces you to really be in the moment and be intuitive and not overthink, not get too wound up. And Jack is always like, I got an idea. Let's do this. Bang. Let's do the next thing. Bang. Let's do the next thing. Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics. Same thing. Never really overthinks anything. It's all from the gut. It's all like, you know, that first take that we were talking about earlier. It's just going for it and then moving on and going for it and moving on and not looking back. You know, at some point you can stop and go, okay, wait a minute, too many ideas. Let's lose these or let's lose that in the verse, keep that in the chorus and you can do a little editing. But there's something about when you work at that quick pace where you don't get to overthink anything like the Jason Mraz track that was done in an afternoon yeah. because it was a, a throwaway almost. And even, you know, you, we talked about the Young the Giant record. Wasn't a lot of overthinking on that record because they didn't have the budget to do it. You know, we had to get it done. I think the budget was 75000 maybe all in, Whoa. top to bottom for that record. Because it was, you know, it was Roadrunner Records. It was a new band. And I I think that's what was spent on it. What was the budget for Icky Thumb? Uh, I I don't don't remember. (laughs) I mean, hard to say. And I mean, I I do remember this. I do remember um, Jack licensing the record um, and getting a healthy fee for licensing the record. And a number of people in the industry at the time thought like, wow, that's, that's incredible that they got, were able to make that kind of deal for this license. But they paid the license back in a matter of a week or two of release because it was so successful, you know? Wow. So, um, how's he do his vocals? Cause it's so charismatic and just, amazing is he in a vocal booth all over dubs you know a couple of the vocals might have been live on the white stripes record uh most of them overdubbed um icky thump definitely took a little bit of work because there's two lead vocals really that are going kind of back and forth in the tune um so it took a little while to get that they were deliberately mic'd differently and treated differently to be almost like um 
a kind of Zeppelin thing. And, um, uh, but, um, you know, I, we, we definitely, Jack was very particular about the distortion on his voice, getting it to break up in a way that was exciting and, as yeah. he would call it, Little Richard-like sounding. Because uh-huh. if you remember all those old records from the 50s and early 60s, they were all so distorted and blown up that it added to this sense of energy and danger, you know. And so we were always kind of chasing that a little bit. Uh, um, tracking the tape too. Try all, all track to sixteen track analog tape. Yeah. Rack and tours as well. Tape. Rack and tours was two sixteen track machines locked together, and the only reason we really did the second machine was that there were a lot of backgrounds. Brendan was brilliant at really, you know, trying different background parts and orchestrating a lot of like the the harmonies. So we needed a lot of tracks for those. No Pro Tools. And he's on uh, Fender amps, uh, those clean lower tones, and the really aggressive. What's the other pretty amp? Pretty much, was? Jack's sound then was a Fender Twin. Uh, in fact, I think it was a '70s Silverface Fender Twin that you know was silver barely tone? on two or three. I'm sorry, silver tone. Uh, sorry, uh, he had a silver tone amp as well. Okay. Um, the the uh, Fender Twin was a Silverface, the gotcha. later '70s, and he also had a. Silvertone 1485, I think, which is the bigger piggyback one that was kind of meant to be a bass amp. Mm -hmm. And he would kind of have it EQ to a certain extent where the low end came from the silver tone, but the meat of the tune, the the mid-range of the sound really, really came from the Fender Twin. Wow. How long were you guys in studio for? You know, uh, I think there were some starts and stops in the sessions, definitely a break before we mixed it. Um, it didn't seem like long, you know, maybe a month overall. Uh, I can't really remember. Yeah. Um, I think we did a few extra tunes, and there were some tunes that we maybe cut once or twice, um, re- recut them. I know the, the whole mix for the album took like five days. I was pretty much mixing like two songs, maybe even three songs in a day. It was really quick wow. mixing because it was only, you know, it's really, it's two piece. It's only 16 tracks, 15 tracks actually. And, um, yeah, it went down pretty quickly. He's had such an incredible career. He reinvents himself. He really knows what his fans want, too. Yep. And he gets off on that. And he really gets off on that. Performance and, is yep. amazing. Uh, he, he's, he's great. And he, he's performing when he gets in the studio, when he solos, when he sings. He's going for it. He's not shy. He's got, uh, I mean, he's got a great sense of confidence in terms of really where he he knows where he wants to go with the record and there were songs on that record raconteur's record where he knew the moment he walked in the studio at 10 30 what he wanted to do that day where he was going and just just kind of went for it that's so cool um you're a producer engineer actually are one of the greatest engineers. And how I know that, because you're so humble, but when I talk to other engineers, they have such praise to you. And this is pe- these are people like Nick Lanay and Greg Wells and Joe Barisi, who does Tool. Like, they just think you're the shit. 
I don't, I don't know because I think I'm clueless, dude. I think I'm totally clueless. I am terrified every single day that I get behind the console. I, I have to like, you know, summon all the gods to get something that I feel is acceptable. It, it, it's just, um, I don't know. I don't, it's funny. Engineering is something that I, I don't really feel that, confident about. Uh, I always feel like, um, you know, I, I, it's a means to an end. I know where I want to go, but I I don't always know the, the, the steps to get there. I'm kind of technically I'm flailing all the time, just trying to make something connect and get to this place where I go, oh yeah, that's what I'm trying to get this artist to sound like. That's the place. But, you know, if you told me the the, the ABCD to get there, I don't know. I'm usually throwing a bunch of things together and hoping that it, that it works, you know? Yeah. And luckily I've done this uh, enough now that I do have a, 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 a lot of knowledge to, do, to, to grab from in terms of getting a different sound or a different approach or a, a simple approach to recording or as opposed to a more complicated one for another project. So, um, but still, I, I, I really, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's definitely a struggle. Like every tracking date, every mix is a struggle. You know, every, you know, you're, you fight and fight for that last 1 dB of 15,000 cycles on the top. You know, is it enough air? Is it too much air? Does it make it sound too slick? Or is it now too closed down and the vocal doesn't feel alive enough? You, you know, it's like every... Every inch is like a battle. Do you think all great artists have a little bit of imposter syndrome? Um, I don't know if they all do. I think do I you? do. Are you kidding me? What I, what I just said. Yeah, exactly. You know, That's what I, I feel. I feel like uh, yeah. You know, when are they going to find me out? I just think uh, uh, maybe because it isn't easy for you, you feel like you don't. You're not confident in your abilities I, i'm not sure do you think that creates something inside of an artist also oh, i think it's part of your drive yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah i think it's kind of the thing that pushes you forward because you're constantly looking behind your back going like please don't let them find out that i am clueless yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> seriously <laughs> what makes a great record producer briefly in one sentence in one word. Oh boy, I I think a lot of it is being a fan of the artist, believing in the artist. Um, I, yeah, I think it's enthusiasm. You know, all the technical stuff you learn comes later. I, I think you just have to want to get in there and kill for the artist and, yeah. and really make them shine. You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a 13, 14 year old kid still, you know, opening up that shrink wrap for the first time uh, on a, on an album. And, and, you know, as a fan, you're going like, wow, I hope it's as good as the last one, or maybe it's even better. Or that one song <laughs> I heard on the radio from the new album sounded kind of weird. I don't know what to think. You know, you, you, I think there's part of you that has to be that where you're like, 
rooting for the artists and protecting them and, and, and just wanting to make them look good. And then you want to go out and tell all your friends about it and how good this record was. And, and, you know, and that translates to you want to reach as many people by what you do in the studio. You know, I always think about that. Like, how can I take Cherry Glazer from being this LA cult favorite to something much bigger that the, the, the audiences are going from, you know, 2,200 in a club to 2,000 in a concert hall. And I, I always think of like, how can I expand it? How can I make it more cinematic? You know, how can I get more in people, more people to have the enthusiasm that I have about this particular artist? Gosh. Perfectly said. Love that. Let's play a little game. In one word, one phrase, one sentence, tell me why these next five producers are great producers. Okay? Okay. Butch Vig. Wow. Uh, Everything he does is just classic. Needless to say, Nirvana, Foo Fighters, Pumpkins. Uh, When I heard the Pumpkins... Gish, let alone Siamese Dream, Gish alone, I was like, this is turning a corner. This is reinventing something. This is taking what was grunge alternative, which was an indie small audience, a niche, and turning it into something that is global. Same thing I was just talking about, reaching people. Butch had this way, Butch still has this way of doing it where he still makes records that are totally honest and true to the artist, but they are so huge. Garbage. We forgot about garbage. What else? That's not one word. (laughs) Gosh, I saw Billy Corgan down in Nashville and we were talking about him. That's why he was the first one on the list. But Gish, I have the Smashing Pumpkins tattoo on my heart. I'm from Chicago. That uh, band course, you meant know. so much yes, to me. Yes, that was the, the city. Yep. Yeah, and there's two, pe- there's two kinds of people. You either get the Smashing Pumpkins or you don't. Oh, uh, interesting. I, I mean, that's how I feel. Oh, anyways. no, I'm from, from that first record on, I'm just like, what? Completely different producer, George Martin. The Beatles. Well, obviously, the fifth Beatle, brilliant arranger, put the extra musicality into that band. Um, and the, the wonderful thing was how he, he himself morphed with them over the times. Like, you know, those records are all different, uh, very different experiences. And somehow he put himself in every one of them in the best way and having worked with him as an assistant engineer with Jeff Emmerich. I mean, he was the ultimate gentleman. And again, only got involved when he needed to get involved. Would the Beatles be the Beatles without George Martin? Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. To the degree of what they are to in 23 now? Who knows? Uh, But I think they would have been huge. I think the times, times were right for it. Um, You know, when you think of the early Beatles, um, the innocence of those songs, the the world was in a place where it, it was ready for the whole British phenomenon to happen. You came up in the 80s and your class that you kind of came up with, with like a Nico Bolas, but in this room, 1977, the band Van Halen comes in. Ted Templeman was the producer. Uh, did you know Ted Templeman much? I never knew Ted or Don. Loved their work. I was a huge fan 
of all those Warner Brothers records yeah. at the time, the stuff that Ted Templeman did, Old Russ Teitelman, Lenny Warrenker. Those are all just classic records. And those producers, you know, those all those sort of in-house producers, they all went from genre to genre. One day they're doing Maria Moldar, and the next day they're doing Van Halen, and then they're doing Ry Cooter, or... Yeah. They're... Uh, it's brilliant. Did you know Lenny Warnerker? Very well. He's amazing. I, I love Lenny. He's uh, uh, talk about great A and R men. He's exactly what you want. He has your back all the time. He will. You will make a better album if Lenny is involved. And you know he may say two things in the course of the album, but they will make the record better. Yeah, he was very instrumental in Gary Clark Jr.'s Warner Brothers. That was one of his last things before he stepped down, kind of. <clears throat> mm -hmm. He's fully retired now, right? I, I think so. I, I think knowing Lenny, he's probably got his hands in things. Yeah. He's scouting talent, doing something. But the music from Warner Brothers for the last five decades is overseen DreamWorks, by Lenny everything. Warner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. DreamWorks. Um, let's go a different genre. Mark Ronson. Love Mark, even though he beat me out for Producer of the Year Grammy. But um, which one? I was nominated for Producer of the Year uh, the same year that he won for Amy Winehouse. Oh, but wow. of course, may the better man win. He deserved it. That record is timeless. Just the idea of getting the daptones involved, uh, just brilliant. Like. Everything about those records, back in black, it's, it's back to black, I should say. It, it's, it's just great. It's just, just great. But why is he a great producer, Mark Ronson? Wow. Uh, yeah. I think if anybody can create something that is that timeless and that cuts across all genres, cuts across all types of people, um, I mean, and he got you to love her. You know, I mean, he really brought out performances in her where you just loved her as an artist, as a person, as a storyteller. You felt her. Great stuff. The, down even to the recent couple of years ago, Queens of the Stone Age record he did. That was a really unusual pairing. Wow. But he brought some really unique things to that record. I didn't know he did yeah. Queens of the Stone Age. I think the last album. I'm spacing out on the name of it, sorry. Have you ever been in the studio and you've heard a song being tracked or a vocal go down and it's brought you to tears? Always. Name one song that you've well, produced. Rufus, Rufus Wainwright. You know, I, I was in the studio countless times with, with Rufus and the performances were, yeah, you couldn't help but hold back, uh, but, but fight the tears. I mean, it just... Incredible. Etta James, same thing. I mean, she was the blues. She had the blues. She, I mean, I, I, my hair is standing up, you know? Incredible. Wow. Elton. Yeah, it's just, I'm, I've been fortunate to be in the room in those moments many times where, like I say, the song just transcends the equipment, the people, everything. It just cuts through it all and reaches you on some base mathematical, emotional level that you can't explain. 
Beautifully said. I knew the answer to that, but I was just wanting to hear <laughs> you say it. Um, so your work ethic is simply insane. You're here six days a week, mixing, tracking, meeting with artists, meeting with A&Rs. How does that affect your personal life? Uh, luckily, I have a partner who is really tolerant. She's really great about that. She encourages it. She knows when something is important, and she knows when it's not important. And she'll tell me that mm, you don't need to do that. You know, somebody yeah. else can do that for you. You can get your assistant to do that, or whatever it is. Gosh. So she's just very understanding. You have to have that as a partner, and if you're going to be in this field, that when I interviewed Mike Persanti, you know him talking about coming up and just being in here 20 hours a day, sometimes sleeping here, and having a girlfriend at the same time. Um, I mean, I'm dealing with something like that right now, where it's just like the jealousy of something else yes. taking time away, and I mentally, I'm just not even. I care about somebody, but I don't even want to give them the time because I'm taking away from this passion, this yeah. drive. I have to do this, and it's it's so difficult because yeah. then you feel like I'm not doing something to this person, right. this girl. But no, yeah, I'm, I'm not, not doing putting, anything for her. Right, I'm not putting you in second place, but this is who I am. It's my fabric. It's my makeup, and I can't help but serve that. Yeah. You know? Do you think that? And every engineer, producer, or kid in recording school that's watching this right now, do you think that if you can't find somebody to go through decades of work like you have that is completely understanding and gets it, that that's not the right person for you? Uh, I'm, I'm not a relationship expert, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> Damn it. For the 18-year-old kid out there that's about to go into music business school or recording school or just likes to write songs with his friends, how, what's the first step of becoming a producer? Practice, working <clears throat> just, with bands? No, write, write, and write again. Just write more songs. Get out as to as many people as you can. Meet people. Share your work. Don't be precious about your work. Just the more situations you can put yourself in, the better. Yeah, but there's nothing better than getting a hit as a producer. Ultimately, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and sadly, because, you know, then you're judged basically on what you've done over the last six months. And no one really cares about what you did six years ago. They're concerned about what your last hit was. Yeah. And, you know, that's not always the best way to judge somebody's ability. Would you rather produce a record that was, let's say, Kings of Leon, <laughs> giant rock band, Foo Fighters, somebody of that caliber. Would you rather produce Kings of Leon's first record, which you've been in many situations similar to that, and then they've completely broken, or would you rather produce them right now in 2023? Oh, I don't know. I think there it's... Um Similar kind of thing. I mean, you know, when, when you're first starting out, there's a sense of uh, innocence and naivete that sometimes makes for um, more interesting records because you make a lot of mistakes and sometimes mistakes can lead to very, very unique situations. You know, if you've done a number of records before, um, Maybe you get a little jaded or you feel like you're, you have to control the process a little bit more than you need to. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there's, there's pitfalls to both. Um, I, I don't really have a preference. I mean, to me, it's just 
working with a great artist. You know, I, I've done five albums with Morrissey and he's as enthusiastic about doing this next record as he was the very first album we did together 10 years ago. You know, he, he still has that passion and that drive and, you know, wants to up himself and still feels like he hasn't made his best record yet. So I think, you know, I think that's, you can always have that in your life, that drive. And, you know, I don't know if it matters if it's your two albums into your career or 10 albums into your career. The personality of the artist or the band, though, is vastly different from coming in on a first record as opposed to their sixth. Of course. Um, is it, it's got to be a little bit more fun when they're just starting off. Yeah, they're they're, open, they're, there's that ignorance is bliss uh, phase where, you know, you just do a lot of dumb things just because you can do them. And uh, I think, you, yeah, you perhaps put limits on yourself as you get further in your career. And eh, I don't know if I should do that. It might not be wise. My fan base not, might not like that. Yeah, maybe you put a little bit more checks and balances. But I, I don't know. I, I've kind of worked with artists that are, you know, very, very, settled in their career and have their sound and have their audience. Uh, we did an Alanis Morissette album here and it was such a pleasure working with her because she really understands her audience, her music. She's committed to what she wants to say. The album was very interesting in that she started it at home with Guy Sigsworth, who's a songwriter producer who she works with often. And she kind of got a little into the process and felt like the record was too electronic, as she put it, that there wasn't enough humanity in the record. And she wanted to take some of the programming that she had done at home and then bring her band in and add that to the record and strike this balance between the electronic side of it and a, a real band side of it. And it was great. It was a great exercise for me because it was I was able to really take these, what you might call a demo that she did at home. And then she gave me all the freedom in the world to chop them up, change the song structures, add sections, bring the band in, you know, keep some of the programming, put more programming on, dump it all. Um, you know, so that's six or eight albums into her career, and she has no fear about taking what she's done. She wasn't precious about it. She wasn't afraid that she'd lose something if, if she just dove in deeper to this record. That, that's 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 the thing that's really exciting to me is is when I work with an artist who's absolutely fearless and doesn't put restraints on themselves that they're just willing to try anything and and that's like you say with a new artist there is that sense of like what the hell we're here yeah let's just do, do this goofy thing I always had this idea to do this goofy idea of putting six guitars in different tunings on top of each other or whatever it is. And you just do this stuff and see what happens. But you don't have to lose that as you get further into your career. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, she's so tremendous too. Vocally, the style, so unique, <clears throat> her personality. How long did you work with her for? 
that a couple of weeks? But in no, here? I think we took we took a good month or two in here nice. uh, between all the tracking, uh, mixing, and everything. Um, uh, she was very fast doing vocals. Uh, what was amazing for me is that when we started doing vocals, you know, she said that all her records usually she writes the song, then goes in and sings it in one take. And that's the vocal. For, so for her to do more than maybe two takes on a vocal was extraordinary to her. You know, uh, she would never really take that much time. It was more like I have this idea, this feeling, this thing I want to communicate. Bang, I go in, do it. That's it. And, you know, I don't labor over it. So it was, it was interesting to see her connect with that inspiration for the tune and then just go in and send the message it's beautiful vocals are such a personal issue for an artist yeah how delicate do you have to be with a female artist or a male artist in a room when producing their vocals yeah vocals are a very personal sensitive thing for some people you know some people um you know they just want to go in one take kill it Elton John I did an album with, and for him, he had to kind of get himself in this space where he understood technically what he needed to do to sing the tracks. He would go in, he'd walk in the studio with blinders on, go right to the microphone, nail it in one, maybe two takes, and then he would know where he messed up. And he'd say to you, can you get me to the bridge? I want to punch in the third line. Can you get me to the last chorus? I was sharp on this one word. Can we punch that in? And, I mean, he just has such presence, such, he's so in the moment. He really delivers a vocal that is so passionate, so big, and you know, you hear that voice come out of the speakers and it's just like Elton John. That's what you grew up with as a little kid, you know? Yeah. And and he, it's so powerful. His piano playing he, he is incredible how intense he is and how fast he is. I mean, he writes the songs in the studio, does the vocal, adds the rhythm section, and it's done. And like a Prince track, it's done in a day. Immediately what I thought of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, like I was saying earlier, there's that thing of not thinking too much, of just getting in, getting in the right headspace, connecting with it, and doing it, and move on. Do you think there's a, a sense of confidence in an artist like that that Absolutely. has to be there for that to and, happen? And however, you know, it was interesting with Elton, he had to get to this place where he was confident, not distracted, um, uber-focused on it. And when he was there, done, fast. Three and a half minutes on, done in three and a half minutes. Wow. That's so rad. What, um, just, I really want to convey some just methods for kids out there, for you know people starting off in the music industry. What are some um, characteristics of a producer to work with an artist about their vocals? Patience, obviously, encouragement. Um, yeah, uh, I think definitely 
being supportive, enthusiastic, being a fan. But I also think flexibility in your method is really important. You know, some people like to work line by line. Some people like to work, they want to go in, do all the choruses, and then do the verses. Some people want to go in, one take, top to bottom, do yeah. it. Everybody has a sort of method that they're comfortable with. And then you have to judge as a producer because maybe they have this method that they like, but maybe it doesn't yield the best results or the most <clears throat> exciting results. And then you got to be able to say, okay, great, we, we got everything we worked this, we punched in word at a time and got something that you're really happy with. I like it. I think it's great. Now I want you to try doing a few more takes where you just go in top to bottom, do the whole song, the absolute opposite of what we just did. Take 15 minutes. Let's see what it brings. Sometimes you get something that's better. Sometimes you get a, a, chorus or a verse that's better because it's not so precise mm -hmm. and um you, you gotta be you gotta be kind of willing to roll with things there's been artists that i've worked with um that have wanted to do the vocals on their own without my involvement and you know your first reaction to that is like, wait a minute, this is the lead vocal. This is the most important thing. Uh, of course I got to be a part of it, but you, you wow. have to trust that, you know, uh, I mean, we did a, a, a spoon album in here. They're nominated for a Grammy this year. I know it's fantastic. I'm so proud of them that, so we did 2014. I think we did an album here, um, called they want my soul, uh, here in studio one, cut all the tracks here, Amazing. uh, spent, I don't know, two weeks maybe here. And then we went to Jim Eno's studio in Austin where the band is based and did all the overdubs there. And, you know, Brit, um, prior to that, I had done a few songs with Divine Fits, which is one of Brit's side projects. And he wanted to do the vocals on his own without my involvement. And I, I just said, you know, look, I'm fine with that as long as you're okay with me hearing that vocal. And then I'm going to offer you some critique you know i might love it and say don't change a thing i might want you to change stuff and he said absolutely yeah. and he was super cool in that you know he just wanted to get in his zone and do the do the vocal and then was absolutely open to any feedback and sometimes i'd say you know i'm not sure of the phrasing here or i'm not sure of you know if it's intense enough here those kind of things and we do okay i'll try some more try this go punch it in and wow. great egoless about it and always bettered the song you're there to facilitate the artist their art but your name goes on at the end of the day when it gets out of your hands like that with a lead vocal mm -hmm. Do you get a little nervous? Like, what? Well, of course you do. No, yeah. of course you do. You know, um, but you know, you've got to um, be the one. You're at the end of the day. You know, when you hand it over to the record company and play it for them, you've got to. You're representing this, so you've got to be there to to 
defend it and to praise it and to believe in it. Yeah. So yeah, if you don't believe in a vocal or a rhythm track or whatever, you've got to be able to say to the artist, like, I think we should cut this again. I don't think we really nailed this song. Let's try a, a different uh, approach. Um, in fact, on the last Morrissey album, there were a couple of tracks that we cut in France when we were cutting the whole record that I never quite felt like we got them right. So we came in here with um, some of the players from the band and some outside players and redid the tracks and got great results. And, you know, Morrissey was happy. Everybody was happy. But I think, you know, you've got to have that communication with the artist that you can say, I think there's something more in this song. I think we can do a better job. I think this could be better. That could be better. I like to be, I like to be able to defend myself properly and my opinions and say, look, I, I think the bass line isn't melodic enough here. I think the drum part's too busy here. I think, you know, the bridge, instead of it being big and grand, I think it should be the opposite. I think it should be simple and intimate. And I'd like to try a new version with all those things in mind, right. and hopefully we get it. Let's give you a scenario. ATO Records contacts your manager and puts you with a band. You, they're a great band that's had success, but you come in and the lead singer is a cocaine addict. How do you deal with drugs and alcohol in the studio as the producer? You know, luckily... And it's, I know you've experienced that many a times. Yes, I have. Luckily, it's something I haven't had to deal with in a long time. I mean, the music business is such now that, you know, people don't have the extravagant budgets and income to blow it on drugs. And most people are pretty serious about their careers and don't want to waste them. Yeah. So it doesn't happen that often. But, you know, it... it it just means more patience on your part. And, you know, I've had situations where I've known that somebody had a, an issue and, you know, I might even have to, like, make sure I got performances out of them early in the day before their habit got the best of them later in the day, if whether it was drinking or whatever it was. And you just deal with it. And I've had situations that have gone really bad where I had to actually, you know, get somebody like music cares to intervene and That's help right. out. And, and, um, you know, I've seen, uh, the great thing is when you see somebody come through all that, if it's rehab or just, on their own, straightening things out, they're a different human being. They're not the same person that you worked with. And it's pretty incredible to see that transformation and to see how they can sort of, um, you know, appreciate life again. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of experience in so many ways with drugs and alcohol and especially recovery. But even Nico Bolas and I were talking the other day. I was like, we should do something on sobriety or trying, you know, to highlight... Um, you know, getting through drugs and alcohol because it's like even the studio, for instance, this room was held Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. Both died of drugs and alcohol. Studio three, <clears throat> Prince, drugs. Studio two, Van Halen. I mean, Eddie just, you know, yeah. destroyed his body, his career. It's just everybody. Yeah. And it's like, you know. But time, times were different. You yeah. know, that was kind of sort of what people did then. Yeah. And people weren't, 
as knowledgeable about the consequences. And they are now, and uh, I do think people take care of themselves, respect themselves a little bit more than they did then. So thankfully, there's not the, that issue doesn't come up that often. Yeah. Scary, scary position for you to be in too, because you're you're responsible the for the project. You know, you're responsible if you go over budget and if you're taking forever to cut tracks because I don't know the drummer has does a chemical issue. At yep. some point, the record company is going to say, "Whoa, how come we're spending you know three weeks cutting basic tracks and something that should have taken ten days." I don't understand this. And, you know, sometimes you're in that awkward position where you can't go and say, well, the drummer's got a chemical problem and we spent all this money, you know, sitting around the studio while he was high and couldn't perform. Can't, just can't do that. Yeah. Have you had any, uh, do you smoke weed ever or anything? Of course. Uh, uh, I, 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 all of the above at one point in time in my life. Yeah. But I'm lucky in that I don't have that addiction gene. It's a disease, yeah. I, I, I just, it's always been moderation. And, and I've been I, out with you one drink, two maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a double. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, that's great. So then <clears throat> something I want to talk to you because you are an East Coast guy and the nostalgia of the 1980s in New York City. Just let's, okay, also talking about Morrissey, a lot of people don't know, he was the front man of a band called The Smiths. Talk to me about the 80s. Just get me in there for a minute. Like, what was it like? Where were you at your career? <clears throat> I mean, 1985. I, I had, I, I, well, yeah, 85, I had been in L.A. a few years. And, you know, for me, what was great when I first came here, punk rock was just blowing up. And any night of the week, you could go out and see Black Flag or the Minutemen or, you know, the Dickies or, or whomever it was. It, it was it was fantastic, the scene. And there was such energy. And I mean, for me, like the clash transformed my life. That was, wow. you know, the late 70s, that was my, my band because I just thought... It was this great combination of grooves, but really smart lyrics. Talking Heads, one of my all-time favorites. Same thing. Like, I think when, for me, what's exciting is when you can mix genres and you can kind of borrow from a lot of different places and make it all make sense together. Peter Gabriel did that. You know, David Bowie did that. Um, that's really exciting to me. Um, so that energy definitely was here in LA. It was definitely in New York in the early 80s, late 70s. You know, what was going on at CB's and uh, all the clubs in New York was was fantastic. And And the level of musicianship and also the fact that every one of those artists sounded so different from the next like you know you could see Blondie the Ramones the Talking Heads they were all phenomenal but so unique yeah. really had their own sound their own personality did you see the police back in those days? Yeah, yeah. Not, not in a club setting. I saw them okay, later. Okay, that's what I was yeah, asking. Yeah. But, I mean, even their sound was so 
it had so many different elements to it, from like reggae to punk to how would you? And and but that was all right, you know. That was it was great to borrow from. from you know, I worked with Oingo Boingo and Stan Ridgeway of Wall of Voodoo and all those those eighties acts when I first came up, and everybody there was this zeal, this 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 desire to hear lots of different music from whether it was dub or world music or punk or classic 70s rock there was like there was no reason that you couldn't dive into that and appropriate some of that or at least you could let it filter into your music. There was like, no, you can't do that. There was no such thing as uh, that, you know? What were some uh, producers of punk that you kind of looked up to that were doing like, oh, like Pennywise Black Flag, yeah, those kind I mean, of groups? Martin Rushant and, and um, you know, all the guys that, that did the early records in the UK. I mean, I was really kind of focused on records that came out of Britain because I think that People made bolder records. They took more chances. They were just kind of more in your face. It seemed like um, in the States, everybody was looking to make the perfect, pristine, hi-fi record where everybody in England was really willing to throw that all away and make something that just made you kind of stand up and take notice and so that was really really interesting and records were being made you know in basement studios really kind of you know ghetto lo-fi kind of recordings and they became huge hits when you yeah. go back and listen to the first police records or joy division some of those records are really funky sounding but they just had such a vibe and they had the tools that they had were so much fewer than what we have now no plugins obviously no you know you had maybe a reverb and a digital delay and a rolling space echo or whatever mm. it was and you really made unique stuff and that's always like a interesting thing that for me is that when you're limited to the tools that you have, you somehow come up with more interesting things, you know? You're, you're forced to use those tools in a way that they weren't designed to be used, and you come up with something much, much more interesting. Gosh, I love listening to you talk. It's so great. I mean, what I do here, just in-house producing, and, you know, I produce indie records, nothing even close to what you do, but... Just getting able to talk to people on a daily basis like you and Greg Wells and Nick Lane and just other producers that come down, Shooter Jennings, it's the amount of knowledge I, <laughs> I pick up on is just amazing because you just have such experience, you know. Uh, the gentleman running the sound right now, Andrew, you know, he reached out to you from Canada. Obviously, he was a big fan. He was in recording school and asked you for a referral to come to Sunset Sound, and now he's working here. I mean, it's just it, it's such a special place here. You know, it's got its no. quirks, it's got its leaks, but it's <laughs> you know, sixty-two years, sixty-three years. It's it's a great community, and it is great to you know run into Greg in the hall or Nick in the hall, and you share 
secrets. You share your latest favorite piece of gear. You share a project you're working on. You share, I just worked with this new studio musician. He's incredible. You should try this guy next time you need a keyboard player or whatever. Um, you know, th that's great. That sense of of community yeah. that scene. I mean, when I first started um, as an assistant engineer, there were probably six, eight assistant engineers at the studio, plus the brothers that owned the studio. They were all three great engineers and producers. And you could just go to any of them and ask them like, hey, you know, how do you mic up drums or how do you do this? Or you, you know, ask one of the other assistants like, hey, I just saw that you were working with Bill Schnee and how did Bill mic up his drums? And, you know, so there was this great sharing of information and it's tough to make that happen now because we all live in our own little private studios and we only have our world that we know. And um, I, I love that about this place and that there's really a lot going on, a lot of talent that comes through here. You know, Kamasi Washington being in here for the last few months, I am like the hugest fan. I was like, you know, leaning my head up against the studio two door because I wanted to hear what they were doing because I'm such a, a fanboy, you know. Yes. Um, he, he's made incredible records over the last few years and really turned jazz upside down. And it's needed a kick. And, you know, just an amazing artist, great band. And um, Tony Austin know, is engineer and drummer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. He makes great records with him. Really, really great records. Uh, it was and, three days ago. I I was because I'm I'm doing another record and I have Tony engineering and I'm EPing it. But Andre 3000 from Outcast from actor. Did I tell you he was in no? Here? I didn't yeah, know that he was on Kamazi's session. Wow, and he had never been here and he's like, "Is this the studio that Nirvana worked in?" I was like, "Nope, that was Sound City." City but yeah. I said, "Andre, come with me." And for an hour, we walked around the studio. This is the Prince piano and this is where Ted Templeman worked and this is Joe's room here and. Uh, he was blown away. And I said, wow. anytime you want to come in here and work on Drew 3000, yeah. let me know and we will come exactly. to Because one, he's just such a creative, he plays instruments, he's known from acting and rapping, but he is an artist. Yep. You know, And everything an artist, a true artist does is just more impactful. You know, uh, Carmen Vandenberg, who I manage, who... We love. Uh, she's, I love she's, her. Carmen is going to be a force. She needless to say, is an incredible guitar player. But as a songwriter, she's just starting to come into her own and, and is writing really beautiful, heartfelt, intense, great sense of groove. And then she does her guitar thing with her own very unique sense of sonics. Yeah, She's going to be, this is going to be an impressive record. And the authenticity of her, too, because she is an artist. She writes poetry. She does all these other things. And it's just everything is just so creative and true. You know, she doesn't write for anybody else either. It's just like, this is my experience. I need to get this out now. Right. Exactly. And I've never seen uh, it more so in an artist where she's like, she's not feeling it. She can't do it. Mm -hmm. It's just like. And, <clears throat> and some artists are truly like that. You know, to me, I, I kind of, I almost like the challenge of having to plow through the uh, uncertainty and indecisiveness and and just you know get to a place where all of a sudden you you know sort of 
get an anchor. You see something that clicks and makes sense, and then it ties the whole song together from for you, and you can just keep going down that path, and you got it. But you know, sometimes you really do have to sort of stumble in the dark to get to a place. And you know, I I never mind making mistakes or or I like to have a plan, have a vision, have a direction, have a end point in mind and blindly go there. And I'm okay if I get to the end of that road and then look back and go, ah, not quite what I thought it was going to be here. I got to scrap this and start again. I'd rather do that than waffling all the way down the road, being not sure and trying this and trying that and just I, I really love to be decisive and take something to its end. And if it's right, you know it. If it's not, then you just got to man up and go, okay, got to try it again or got to scrap those two days of guitars that we did that you know we thought had all this promise because they were taking the song in a new direction. It wants to be simpler than what we did. Let's yeah. just... That's like uh, my friend Jacob Skiba who produces Gary. He's like, Love Gary Jacob. will do 85 takes on a solo and then use number two, but you have to go there to know that this is exactly. the way. So you have to be convinced yourself. Um, years ago, um, I did an album with Pat Benatar, who's an incredible <laughs> singer and sweetheart of a person, Neil Giraldo, her husband, great guitar player, just really amazing talent. But, you know, she was trained as an opera singer. So, you know, one of the few people that can get in a room and sing six hours, eight hours, wow. and the tone of her voice never changes, you know. Most singers, their voice gets darker after they sing for a while. She could sing all day. But sometimes she would sing dozens of takes. And then, you know, I'd go, can I play you something there was something about the third take that you did. I held on to it. Can I play you this? And then it would be like, whoa, oh, that's pretty good. Uh, wow. Can we take the bridge from what we just did on take 15 and then use all of take three because it's got a spark to it and put it together? But, you know, you never – sometimes – you have to be convinced. You have to go through that process. Not always, but sometimes you've got to go all the way down the road and then look back and say, okay, now that I got it absolutely 100% perfect, is 100% perfect what's necessary for the tune? Wow. Amazing. How, how do I become f more cool? Like yeah. <laughs> you were fucking cool. cool. I mean, that's, you're New York cool. You're in jazz. You're a record producer. You know everybody. I mean, even when Carmen and I went to Soho House and you and Nick Lanay. I mean, it's just fun being around you because you're just doing cool shit. And obviously, I've had a few times where I've get to been in the room when you're producing, and it's that's where you really find out who someone is. Even an artist, you know, it's kind of like. The pressure, is it going to get to someone? You have so much experience, but it's just, I'm such a fan of yours. So this well, was... Yeah, true, thank you. That's yeah, kind. I mean, I'm not, it's like, you're just a fucking awesome guy. Excuse my language, but 
So that brings me to, you know, talking about the community down here. And when I've sat in on these conversations and eavesdrop, when you're talking to Nick Lane about making, mixing Arcade Fire, it's the greatest story ever. You came up with this really cool concept and I egged it on, which was, and it's going to be so good. And it's going to be on Sunset Sound's YouTube channel. But it's you and another producer sitting down in the control room behind me. And it's called How'd You Get That Sound with Joe Ciccarelli. Tell me about the format of this show. Well, uh, it, it really stemmed from that feeling of community, that feeling of like, you know, running into other fellow record makers and being a fan of them and loving what they do and wanting to learn from them. I mean, I'm, I'm still ravenous. I watched the same YouTube videos that any kid getting started watches because I'm curious, is there another way? Is there something I missed? Is there a different way I can do it and get some different results? Uh, but the specifically the podcast, the YouTube um, show came about with me thinking about running into friends in the hallway and sharing those secrets, if you will, those methods and, you know, really listening to the work that they're produced and been really curious on the techniques that they use to get that result. And, you know, you could have a 15-minute conversation with somebody in the hallway and really learn a lot. And you would run in the control room and try the thing that they just suggested to try. You know, they'd say, hey, did you ever try taking that piece of gear and instead of using it like this, you know, turn the settings this way? And you go, no, I never did that. Oh, you should try that. So you'd run in the control room and try that. So it was kind of really spurred on by that sort of, energy and um i'm excited about the show because really i i get to be a fan of all these these people and really share their their secrets and and the nice thing is that that we're mutual fans so we're basically are telling stories about records that we've made and what they appreciated in mine and what i appreciated in theirs and um I really hope people are going to do it because I think it's 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 a it's a fun concept that all of us don't have that ability to bump into Greg or Nick or Eve or whomever in the hallway and yep. share those secrets. It's so good. I mean, this show is a big success, but this is designed about documenting the studio. Who was on the sessions? Who wrote the songs? Who was here? What did it smell like in 82 when Eddie walked in? You know, all these things. Prince. It smelled the same in 82 as it smells now. That is exactly <clears throat> true. And everybody that comes in says that. It <clears throat> smells the same. That's, that's my favorite line is Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols <laughs> came in here a number of times and Steve said, you know, I love this room. It even smells like the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. But, I mean, this stuff, this should be a subscription service because it's so good, but it's just free content. I don't want anything to compete with our show on our channel even, but this is so amazing when you're sitting down talking with Joe Barisi. And it's like on the first installment, we have Nico Bolas, who's done three Toto. decades of Neil Young. That's right. Was sure. on Toto 4, worked on that a lot, has worked with My Morning Jacket, has worked with everybody. Yep. Taylor Swift, done amazing, amazing work. The Mavericks he just did. Al Schmidt he was with for two decades. I mean, 
you know, that's one of the first guests. Greg Wells, who works with Adele, who works with 21 Pilots. Nick Lanay, who did Arcade Fire, Mixed Neon Bible, and has done all the Nick Cave and all these great records I like. What, you know, I just, just the other day happened to read an article, and I didn't even know that Nick produced Semisonic's Closing Time. I didn't know that either. Yeah. Dan Wilson's old band. Talk about it. I a had hit. no idea. Yeah. yeah. Huge hit. <laughs> Still. Huge hit. No, Nick was somebody that I was following from when I first started. I would hear the stuff he was doing in Australia with, with you know, um, In Excess or, or Midnight Oil and was just like, these records coming from Australia are incredible. Like, they have different gear down there. What, what's going on, you know? Yeah. And it was Nick. He was wow. a different gear. You can totally see a producer's personality when you know these people personally on a record. <laughs> Can't you? Wouldn't yes. you agree? I mean, literally, there's the producer's vibe all over a record, which makes it amazing. Um, I mean, you and him talking together is one of the most entertaining things ever. It's just like from David Byrne to Nick Cave to Jack White. It's like, I don't know. So, uh, and then also we have. Um, who else? Eve Rothman, who is yeah. another Sunset Sound My producer. My next door neighbor, yes. who is doing the coolest stuff. Uh, I I probably shouldn't say who he's working with now, but he's he is doing the new um, Cherry uh, Glazer. Sorry, uh, Eve is doing the new Cherry Glazer record, um, and it's so great to see Clem around the facility all the time. Just another day walking in with her guitar, <laughs> going in to do some overdose. It's like the coolest, you know. Yes. You want to be around that. You want to be around those people because they're they're. You know, trying to reinvent the game, reinvent themselves, come up with something new. That's great energy to be around. Yeah, he's such a, an up-and-coming underground producer. But, I mean, I'm the reason we got him in here. I was like, this guy's going to be gigantic one yeah, day. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's so doing creative. really unique stuff. And, and I love the fact that one minute he'll do something that's super electronic and programmed, then the next minute he'll do something that's a band. Yep. And, yeah. It's good. I always think it's really, really healthy to jump around in terms of the type of music you're working on because I always fear getting stale. I always feel like if I were to do, I don't know, a heavy rock record and then another heavy rock record, and never, I'd start to copy myself and use the same techniques and all. But when you deliberately change up genres you you really are testing yourself and you have to push yourself to to do something different every time you get in the studio your resume is no better example of that also if go kids go on joe ciccarelli all music discogs and it's going to be about uh, 197 pages for joe's discography but just look at the diversity from jazz to rock to reggae to soul to i mean etta james and then the next record you did after that was like did you work with robert palmer on something I think? no i wish it is great voice who really is an artist that you've always wanted to work with and maybe will well someday? certainly bowie you know um the clash those were really uh, when i kind of really came up and started to understand music you know when i was when i was younger i, I sort of I don't know, was a fan and was a player, but really didn't understand the making of music and the um, uh, mindset behind it. Um, I, I would say Bowie to me because those records were 
always taking chances and he would abandon a style. He'd do a record that, you know, was a soul record and then he'd go off and do something that was crazy atonal with Adrian Ballou and, you know, it was just fearless. Uh, to me, that's, that's the one word I keep saying over the years so many times is I think as an artist, you really have to be fearless and just keep blindly going wherever it is that art takes you. you yeah. Do you like St. Vincent? I do. I think, I think she's great. I think she's really great um, at concepts, uh, really great um, at coming up with a sound and a character and a tone. I'm, I'm not sure she's hit the ultimate song yet, the, the one song that really like sticks in the public mind. Exactly. But I think she's a great artist. Yep. David Byrne kind of brought her up also. Uh, one more question about current artists. Sam Fender, mm -hmm. know him? I do. I think he's really, really great. In fact, um, it's funny that you mentioned it because it came up recently. Uh, somebody asked if I was interested in working with him, and I said, yeah, I think there's something going on there. I, I think he's really cool. I, that's exactly why I asked. I think you'd be perfect to work with yeah. him. Um, plus, he's just gigantic. I mean, we saw him uh, over in Europe, and there was 150,000 people, yeah. and he wasn't even the headliner. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, it's interesting. always interesting to me, artists that make it in other countries and don't quite work here and how the opposite happens. Um, you know, uh, Jack Severetti, who's another artist that is huge in Europe, just starting to crack here. Um, we were talking about this band, the Arkells, Canadian band, who basically own the airwaves in Canada and anything they put out huge up there, but doesn't quite cross the border. Uh, Stromae, Belgian artist that is just incredible, but it's just a cult following here. Yeah. But there, you know, in France, can sell just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of tickets. Yeah. Even Kings Leon, they were gigantic in London, England, all through there, and then nobody even knew who they were in the States for years. Yeah. That's wild. Um, okay, last topic, and there's so many people that are going to want to know about this. Uh -oh. Morrissey, <clears throat> you've done more records with that artist than any other artist. This will be your fifth with him? <clears throat> Sorry. This will be my fifth complete album with Morrissey. I did some B-sides prior to the very first album uh, I did with him. Um, yeah, he's a singular artist. He's a unique human being. He is a, an amazing lyricist and singer. He gets up to the microphone and kills it in two takes. Yeah. The, what he brings to a song, and I, I, I hear the demos before there's a melody there. And when I hear oh. what he adds, what he brings to the song in terms of a melody and a lyric, it's incredible what he adds. He's just so special. And... He walks the talk. I've never seen him, the things that he says and believes in and fights for, I've never seen him go back on his word. He, he, he's the kind of artist that I think, you know, as a kid, you, you wanted those role models. You wanted people that spoke their mind, even if you didn't agree with them. But, but they stood for something, and he's just not afraid to state his mind to be a provocateur at times to really make you 
think to kind of stir up some emotions in you and get you talking about exactly. things. Exactly. I love that. Like why are certain artists allowed to do that but then other ones aren't? Yeah. And that's that's what I look for in an artist. What's your point of view? Exactly. You know, exactly. How do I relate? How do yep. I believe in you? Maybe I don't believe with everything, but now it's like if you're not set in stone safety, they 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 shit on you. Like that Morrissey gets so much shit and he's such a great artist. He's he's such a great artist. It's really a a, a quite a privilege for me to have worked with him all these times that he's really trusted me and and you know we've done different sounding records together and he really you know goes into this every record with a sort of vision last record you know he really wanted to push it and do something that was a little bit bolder or more electronic and this record I have a feeling will maybe be the opposite of that it'll be a little bit more organic a little more band like perhaps even simpler overall um and, but you know he's a strong personality and you know you gotta put your trust in an artist and if somebody is so sold on their vision then you gotta hop on board and believe in it and help them see that through or you shouldn't be there you know wow so perfectly said Okay, so amazing. I'm so not worthy of sitting here oh, talking stop with it. you. Stop it. Yes, you are. I heard the stuff you're doing. And more importantly, I, I heard the artists that you're finding and developing and nurturing. And that's a skill in itself, finding artists in their very sort of embryonic states and really blowing them up and taking them to the point of actually doing a full album and being put out in the world. That's that's a lot of patience, a lot of time, a lot of belief, yeah. commitment. It's, it's a beautiful thing, too. I mean, uh, speaking of Carmen Vandenberg, it's like a year ago, you know, she was a guitarist and now she wouldn't sing in front of anybody, even you. I brought you right to her. And I said, mm -hmm. you gotta it was always a battle to get those demos now, from her. Now we're doing songs and she gets right up. She sang in concert the other night and she's got a great voice. But it's that impossible. She's got a beautiful presentation. Like there's just so much heart and soul in her voice. When she sings, you can really feel the story that she's telling. It's it's really impressive. Exactly. She you got it on your knees that one time and she was like, Oh my god, Joe got on his knees. He was so excited <laughs> about it. I was like, Yep, that's amazing. Um last question. What do you want to see in your career before you are done making records? You've got the Grammys. You've got worked with so many amazing artists. You are so respected by your peers. You've got your own studio. You've done so much. What is one more thing that you want to accomplish in your uh, time? You know, I, 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 I do this because Perfect I, record? Yeah, this is, it is ultimately the perfect record. I am still in search of that you know it's kind of getting something that uh i feel like i can listen to the artist is proud to listen to they love it there's no better feeling in the world when you've finished a record and an artist comes to you and says you know what i love the record we just did I love it. It's exactly what I had hoped to achieve. There's 
no better feeling than that. Gosh. It's pretty amazing, you know, when you kind of, you know, records can take months and months of your life to complete. And, you know, there's times, like you say, that you have rough days for whatever reasons and you have good days and, you know, you go through that journey together and, you know, at, at the end of the process, when the artist really believes and loves the record and is proud of it, man, th there's no better feeling. There's no better way to end than on that last sentence. Look for Joe's show, How'd You Get That Sound, on this channel, Sunset Sound Recorders. Joe's on Instagram under Artfit Pro, Joe Ciccarelli. I'm going to go listen to some Joe records right now. You can start with about any genre. <laughs> You're going to go make some more. Thank you so much, Joe. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. This was good, Drew. Excellent. Really, really fun.